of 1 Peter, as we see this very relatable kind of communication into the lives of people and Christians in 1 Peter that were navigating persecution in 64 AD when the Emperor Nero was coming against the people. He, were, he was blaming the people for a fire in Rome and because of that blame that he shifted to Christians, Christians began to be persecuted very, very heavily. And like we've said over and over and over again, Christians at, at that time already kind of on the hot seat were now no longer cool kids at the table, pushed to the outside and pushed to the margins of society. And so as culture has developed from that time to now, there have been fluctuations in how the church has been perceived and even received in culture. And if you haven't already seen it, we are navigating a cultural climate that is shifting back to this time of 64 AD, when 1 Peter is written, when Peter is writing this letter to a group of churches in Rome who are in desperate need of encouragement and reminding about who they are and what God is doing with them, for them, and the promises He's made. So Peter, very much like Paul, writes his letters with kind of this, uh, kind of this melody to it. Uh, you know, Peter and Paul, very similarly, they start out their letters by reminding you about what the gospel is and reminding us about who we are in Jesus. And then so what we see this morning, as we've navigated that, we've navigated kind of shifting our mindset about how we think about trials, how we think about what our faith is doing in the midst of those trials, and how God participates with us in the midst of opposition and difficulties and trials as we navigate a world and friendships and employee, employee places and, and, and relationships with people who don't look at the Christian faith as that kind of grandfathered in place anymore. You know, it's uh, we for a long time, like we've talked about, the church has been those people that most people would run to. You know, I had a conversation with about this uh, with, with someone uh, in our community, some of our leadership in our community. Community. And, uh, you know, we were having this conversation in regards to even funerals and deaths. And we were saying, you know, there was a time whenever sudden death would happen or this tragic event would happen and people would flock to churches. But church, that's not the case anymore. When tragedy happens, people aren't running to the church anymore. You know, and, and some of that may be our fault. And, and we've said through and through this series that there are things for us as a church we've got to take responsibility for. But then some of that also is just the cultural mindset about how the church is seen. And we have said from the beginning that this place we are at is the place at which God has intended His church to be. We have meant to be the outsiders because we have meant to be the escape for people from the world. Not to make them comfortable in the world. Because God's glory and God's gifts and God's goodness far outweigh anything that the world can offer us. And so what Paul, Peter, I'm telling you every week at least one time I call Peter Paul. <laughs> Peter is going to take this opportunity as we've talked about all these mindsets and he kind of continues to flesh this out, specifically speaking on our salvation this morning, kind of bring this up to the surface. And we're going to see kind of a pivot point where just like Paul, Peter begins to write telling us more individually how we should live, and right after this, tell us how to live holy lives. Later on, he'll tell us how to navigate submissive relationships in employee and employers and governmental type statuses. And then he'll shift to even telling us how we navigate a marriage as Christians in this climate. And so he's going to start to get very much more kind of individualized, a lot more specific, a lot more practical as we kind of continue to navigate. And this is the pivot point. 
This is the point here in 1 Peter 1, 10-13, where we see the pivot to the more individualized personal experience for each and every one of us. And he begins it in trying to help us kind of grab a hold and understand some things uh, that's really going to set a course for the rest of this book. And so what Peter really wants to bring our focus in on, and Paul does the same things in his letters, before he begins to give us instruction on what we should be doing specifically in our day-to-day, He brings heavy, heavy focus to one thing that should be the one thing that leads, guides, directs, and motivates everything a Christian should do because it is the unique quality of the Christian faith that no other faith claims. And it's grace. It's God's grace. You know, and and what I love about Peter... You know, as he speaks about this unique element of the good news or the gospel that, that it carries us and is carried by us, is that Peter, better than most, really Peter, better than anybody, understood the grace of God, right? Brother Garing kind of laid that out and right before we started the series. You know, Peter was just a hothead. He was passionate. He was excited. Uh, he loved God. He loved Jesus. But he, I mean, he was one of the few people who argued with Jesus. Um, he, was, he was violent and he was passionate, chopping off the ear of one of the guys coming to arrest Jesus. Just, just, just explosive. And then in, in the moment when with his pride, Peter would stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, I will never deny you. I will never turn my back on you. Shortly after that, when Jesus is being, uh, being ready to be crucified, being marched down the road, carrying the cross, beaten, bruised, and scorned, within eyeshot of where Peter is, someone asks, hey, aren't you that guy that was walking with Jesus? And what does Peter say three times? He says, no, that wasn't me, in fear and doubt. And at the end of that, experiencing shame on a level that I can't imagine. And then after that, I can just imagine where Peter is mentally. He flees that place, broken, beaten, and he even goes back to the job that he used to do, probably thinking to himself, there's no way that the God of the universe wants anything to do with me now. But what happened? What do we know happens at the end of the Gospels? Jesus goes and finds him. And he says, you're going to lead my people. You're going to feed my people. You are going to start a movement that will reach the ends of the earth. And church, today we celebrate Peter's fruit. Him preaching the gospel, making disciples to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth in retrospect to where this message was first delivered. And so we today celebrate the grace that God had given Peter, and he has passed that on from generation to generation to generation. One of the, I mean, you know, it's amazing how intact and how amazing it is that the Christian message has carried on this long. Thousands of years, over 2,000 years, that this message, even longer than that, from the beginning of time, as this has carried through to where we are today. Like, if we really think about that. How amazing that is. And so two things this morning that I believe we can see from this text. The first thing is this, is that this unique gospel is realized fully in Jesus for us. That this unique gospel is realized fully in Jesus for us. And so I love in verse 10 how Peter starts this. He says, the prophets, talking about these people in the Old Testament, he says, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. 
And so the first thing that we see about this, and I think this is very unique, and a lot of times when we read the Bible, we don't, we don't always make these connections. And, you know, there are very popular, prominent pastors and preachers that are on TV or on the Internet that will tell us that we don't need the Old Testament to enforce or educate our New Testament walk and the New Covenant. But I believe that because the New Testament references the Old Testament so often that it, all the Old Testament does is help enforce it even more, help us realize even more about the grace of God. So that's why Peter mentions that. When he references here, he's connecting, uh, kind of revealing to us the continuity of the Bible written over 1,400 years, written by uh, 40 different authors, written in three different languages, for it all to come together and have this cohesive narrative that communicates one message. The work of God on behalf of broken humanity for His own glory and for our good. Thousands and thousands of years compiled into a text that is it translated perfectly into English? No, it isn't. Is there a perfect English translation? There is not. But I do believe every English translation we have, for the most part, communicates to us accurately and without compromise the truth about who God is. And so when Peter is writing this, he knows that his community that would be reading this would know like, man, he is connecting dots to things that have happened hundreds of years ago to remind us about the unique nature about what God does and is doing with his people. And remember, Peter within himself and within his ministry is responsible for going to those who at that time would have seemed outside of God's fold, the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews were kind of God's chosen people during the New Old Testament. And then the New Testament covenant, the covenant of grace, brings in those who were not of Jewish descent. And so Peter and, and, and the early church, is their job is to go outside of this community and to bring in these people that would have seemed outside of the fold. And so he is talking to these people, these Gentile Christians or these non-Jew Christians in Rome and he's telling them that the prophets of old, the prophets that you wouldn't have even associated with, the prophets that you wouldn't have even thought at one point were talking about you, they were speaking to you. They were speaking about the grace that God had for you. And so when we think about that, you know, there's so many verses in the Bible that communicate this. 2 Samuel 7, 28, he says, And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Psalm 9, 10, David writes, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Isaiah 7, 14, some of the most prominent prophecy is seen in the book of Isaiah. He writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 53 just continues to talk about this and speaking specifically about Jesus and how all of this is realized in him. It says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely he has been born our griefs. He has borne our griefs and carried our shames. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastity that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. These are written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would walk the earth. And what Peter is doing is he's reminding us about the continuity of these texts, of these things of old. And to a people that would have never in a million years thought that it would have been applicable to them, he's reminding them. These prophets of the Jews that were saying these things, these things were about you too. 
These, this grace that he speak, they speak of was for you also. Because what he wants us to understand is that in Jesus, we, in the people who now know, have seen the full expression of God's grace in Jesus, in his life. In his death, in his sacrifice. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. He says, these things are for you. And church, not only for you who are the, the, the people who Peter is writing to, but he's speaking it to us also. This is a, a prescriptive uh, instruction for us. He is prescribing this to us. That this grace that these prophets prophesied about, it is yours. In verse, the rest of verse 10, he says, that grace, that was to be yours. Peter wants to highlight the unique experience of those after Jesus and the modern church. That this is fully realized because of our knowledge of who Jesus is. Because we know who Jesus is, we know more than even those in the Old Testament even knew. They could only guess. They could only speculate. But we and everyone after Jesus, we have the unique experience to know and to fully realize the expression of God's grace because He did it in the form of God, Emmanuel, with us in Jesus, dying for our sins, for the most broken, for the most sinful, for the most shameful, for the most poor. He died for all so that that grace could be yours. So that that grace could be mine. Matthew 3 17, he says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We have seen the expression of God's grace and we take this for granted. But people, the, 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 the prophets of old, the, the, the people, the saints of the Old Testament, they longed to know what God was planning to do. They knew the plan they knew that He would bear our transgressions. They knew that He would die for our iniquities. They knew that something would happen, but how it would happen. How it would happen that a lowly servant would come down and be born in a manger, be born in, in, a, in a place that is not fit for birth, that is not fit for growth, that is not fit for safety. That He didn't come in on a cloud of fire, that He didn't reign on a throne with a crown, with a sword and conquer nations. But he sat with sinful people. He sat with the people, touched the people that most people were putting outside of their camps. We don't need that disease in our camps. He was going to those people. He was reaching towards the afflicted. He was expressing grace and love and mercy in a way that, that doesn't make sense. The reason why most religions deny any type of grace at all because they believe if a God is as mighty and strong as He is, why in the world would He offer broken people grace? Most gods expect you to bow and fall at their knees and to do their biddings. But our God fell to His knees. Took the piercing, took the nails, took the suffering for us. 
Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Church, and the reason it says that is because we, in this unique experience, realize through Jesus Christ, we have been given an opportunity. We have been given an opportunity to see and to know the expression of God's grace. When we talk about grace, just to simplify it, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Remember, mercy is getting is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so what God has given us, that thing that we don't deserve, that God has given us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, is He's given us redemption. He's saved us. He's rescued us from the penalty and the punishment of our sin. And not only that, but He has given us, like we've sang about this morning, He has given us favor. That when God looks upon us, He doesn't see my righteousness, which the Bible tells me is filthy rags. He says, any good that I can do is not good enough. That my goodness alone is not good enough because it's tainted by my selfishness. It's tainted by my pride. But the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus that clothes me whenever I believe in Him and I put my faith in Him and I say, God, I can't do it on my own, that when God sees me, He sees me and He has favor because of Jesus. And it's that confidence that we can live in. And it doesn't make sense to us. It blows our mind because like we've talked about before, the idea of grace and unmerited favor does not make sense because nothing in our world system functions like that, right? When our employees, you employers, when your employees don't do well, they don't get favor, right? There's, there's punishment. And, and there are certain systems that there should be. I mean, the Old Testament system was set up in this way that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins, for, for, for wrongdoing. It was set up to reveal to us that, yes, there is justice. There is justice. God giving us unmerited favor is not unjust. Why is it not unjust? Because justice was served through what? Through Jesus. So it's not unjust to give us favor to give us value, to give us purpose. Because justice has been served once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so, yeah, you know, there are certain systems where favor is not given, where favor is not due if the work is not done. But thank God that His system is different than ours. That the eternal judgment, the eternal system is a system of grace. And he says in verse 11 that it's realized through the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. That the expression of grace is realized in the work of Jesus on the cross and all that has been done since. 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2 uh, says, Working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In a favorable time... I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God has given us salvation for a purpose, for a reason. To be a part of this time. This favorable time. This favorable expression of what He's doing. John Newton said this. An old Puritan theologian. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we sang about that this morning. That I am who you say I am. That by the proclamation and the grace and the favor of God, we are not defined by who we used to be. That we are not defined by the people that we've been. That even though we aren't who we want to be right now, he says we are not defined by that. That even in those moments when I I hope to be more and I'm not, thank God I am who I am in him because he says I am. And then he continues and he says that they were serving in verse 12. They were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. Church, the gospel has been delivered and been passed down through this unique experience that is realized in Jesus for the church to carry on. And we have the opportunity to step in to this over 2,000 year old message that has sustained, that is changing lives, that is bringing people to a place of acceptance and value in the, the, the scope of what God is doing. And he says that all these things have been done for you, speaking back to the people. So much has been done. So many people have died and given their lives on behalf of this message and are right now giving their lives today. Giving their lives on behalf of this message near the very place at which this message would have been received initially. People are dying around the world for this message. And so as Peter's writing this, he's speaking into those spaces Listen, people have been preaching this good news by the power of the Holy Spirit for you to know that as you navigate these trials and these uncertain times that you would know the grace of God, the gospel, the work of the church and the, 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 the power of this message. You know, because all throughout history, people have died for for this message, like we said, this message to live by, this message to lead by, this message that saves and redeems and reveals. And it even tells us, I love, and the Bible says this a couple of times in the New Testament. The Bible, it tells us here, it says, which angels long to look. You know, a lot of times when we think about angels, we think about this idea of these kind of hyper uh, spiritual beings. But remember, angels are created. But where we differ from them and why the Bible tells us even more than once that they long to know what we know is because we get to experience the grace of God. We get to experience broken people being rescued by a sovereign, almighty, powerful, all-knowing God. A God outside of space and time reached down into my life broken, sinful Jake's life and began to revive my dead spirit. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses. There is no life there. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God, this God that knows me, that knew me, and that will know me, reached down into my broken life, began to revive me to a point where I would finally realize, God, you've done what for me? For me, Romans 5a, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You know, when that verse finally realized, I mean, I had known about God and Jesus for, time, for, for many, many, many years in my life. And, and honestly, in the system I was in, was spending most of my life climbing uphill and constantly slipping back down the loose gravel of that hill and just fighting and fighting and fighting, trying to get to this place where I could finally just feel like, oh, thank you, God, like I'm here, like I've made it. And I feel like many people in many different denominational backgrounds and many different systems are constantly fighting that battle uphill, trying to get to that place where they feel like they've experienced the grace of God. But unfortunately for a lot of people and a lot of churches and a lot of elements, we created such a religious system of do's and don'ts that you constantly feel like you're never there. And that is not what God intended for us to do. That is not how He intended for us to live. And that's why Peter is here saying that they prophesied about a grace that was for you. Grace is receiving something that you cannot earn. You cannot ever make it up that hill on your own. But the grace of God grabs a hold of our, of our, of our hands and carries us up that hill. Does it hard? Absolutely, it's still hard. And I think the hardest part is continuing to realize that grace. Continuing to know that it's there. Continuing to know that it's offered to us. Because this is a message that saves, it rescues, it redeems, it puts families back together. It redirects those on broken paths. And so the second thing this morning, not only is the gospel, this unique gospel, realized fully in Jesus for us, but this unique gospel, the second thing this morning and last thing, this unique gospel is meant to be everything to us. He says in verse 13, because of this grace and the salvation that we have through that grace, he says, therefore, remember anytime you read therefore, we always connect it to what we read before. He says, therefore, because of this, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, he says, because of this grace, because of what's been done, because this thing carries us, because this thing reveals to us what we do and how we navigate, because of all of that, he says, set your hope fully, fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you in Jesus. Fully, totally, completely perfected. Set it on the grace of God so that it will continue to carry. It will continue to drive. It will continue to lead through all the things that we face in life. Romans 15, 4 through 5, he says, Whatever was written in former days, it was written for our instruction. That through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such a harmony, such harmony with one another in accord with Christ. Jesus. He tells us, listen, these things written in former days, they were written for our instruction so that through endurance and through encouragement that we might have hope. 
that it doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter how dire the circumstances, the oppression, the persecution, the resistance to our faith, and it will come, and it is happening. Maybe it's happening in your family. Maybe it's happening in the place where you work or the friend circles that you navigate in. It is happening right now. And he tells us that because of what's been written, and not only because of our endurance, but he says he's the God of endurance, so not only our personal endurance that we step into, but the endurance of the Scriptures, the endurance of the message, the endurance of the hope that we have in God's grace. He says we live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus because of this, that this is a message meant for movement. It is a message for us to grab a hold of. It's a message for us to share with those around us, setting our hope fully on the grace of God. Remember the grace being the unmerited favor of God, that God's grace isn't only for my past, that God's grace isn't only for my present, but God's grace is also for my future, and that it's promised, and it is secured in Jesus Christ. And so how for us, with this unique gospel, do we make it everything to us? How do we preserve this message in our lives as we navigate guilt and shame and fear and doubts and the resistance and the hardships that we navigate in trials? And this is where we see that pivot for us to react, for us to today be actively making moves in our lives to see this message fully realized, not only in our own minds, but see this message fully realized in how we live out in our day-to-day -day life with our kids, with our spouses, with our, the, our friends, and the people that we see within our community. How do we preserve this message? And he gives us two things. The first thing he says in verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. You know, I think it's very unique that he starts with our minds because if we're honest with ourselves, the way we think motivates the way we act way more than anything else does, right? Because when we think, you know, and you hear it all the time in sports, I say it to my kids all the time, listen, if you're mentally defeated before you've even, even stepped on the field, then it's over. Then you've already become a victim. You've, you've already lost the battle. Our mind motivates our emotions. Our mind motivates our movement. It mo it, it, our mind and how we think, because when we, are, when we are distracted, when we are depressed, when we are, 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 are just dismantled mentally, you have zero, zero motivation to do anything, right? We have zero motivation to step in when we are distressed, when we are discouraged, when we are disappointed with people or with the church or with our community or with our sports team, whatever it might be. You know, whatever our mindset is towards that particular thing, we check out. We remove ourselves from those things. We completely just are absent from that because of our mindset. And so he starts with our minds because he knows the way we think motivates our actions. And I love that in a lot of illustrations or a lot of uh, different translations, it may not say prepare your minds for action, but it may say this, gird up the loins of your mind. I always love when people say that. And so that's a fun little, little saying. I say that sometimes in my house and people look at me like I'm crazy. But to gird up your loins, what does that mean? And I think it gives us an even better illustration kind of what uh, he's trying to say here. But in ancient practice, to gird up your loins was gathering up one's robe when needing to move in a hurry. 
And so you imagine them grabbing the ropes, pulling them up so that their feet could move, so that they wouldn't accidentally trip or get caught on these robes that they wore. And so to gird up your loins, here it's being applied to this process of motion. And not only casual motion, but intensive motion. Intentional motion. And listen, this type of process, preparing our minds, girding up our loins, it's not by default. It's by effort. Purposeful, intentional effort. Being prepared for action in our Christian lives for hard and constant spiritual exertion. Listen, it's easy to not be spiritual. It's easy to not be spiritual in our own lives. It's easy to not lead our families spiritually. It is easy to do that, right? Because that's our default, to be comfortable, to kind of settle back, to get home from a long day and sit down and binge watch our favorite show or to sit down and scroll through mindlessly through social media. Like, that's easy. But what takes some girding up? What takes some preparing? It's pursuing God in our daily life. Preparing our minds for the action of our day. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I have to prepare my mind to come into here and to communicate to you some days, most days, just because of our week. I mean, I, we're, we're all exhausted. We're all tired. We're all discouraged at times, especially after the last two years we've had. But what God has called us to do is as we gird up our loins, as we prepare our minds, He's telling us to be constantly in our lives going through these circuits of, of getting ourselves in a mindset where we understand the grace of God and that it motivates our reasons. It's the fuel that tells me, God has done so much for me, why would I not? Why would I not? So thankful for, for you guys and in, in the ministry and, and, and with our kids. And um, why would we not load up ice chests and bring a bunch of supplies to a bunch of people that have broken homes and broken situations? You know, why would we not? We had a meeting with our community leaders this past week. Why would we not have drop-off stations at our churches and pile in as many supplies as we can and go in a caravan to a small community in that area and just deposit all this love and humility? Why would we not? Because of the grace of God. If it's for any other reason, for, for, for attention, if it's for our own good, or if it's for our own encouragement to make us feel like we're doing something, it's null and void and it means nothing. But if it's, for the, it's, it, but if it's because of the grace of God, then it means everything. Because what we're passing along is we're not passing along ourselves. We're not passing along that, that I'm just so great. Or that Crosspoint Communities Youth is so, so, so giving. And we're passing along the grace of God. You know, if you'd have read the scriptures and the encouragement those kids wrote on those things, man, it's just, I, I pray that that, that that carries on far beyond just the act itself, and I believe it will. Because we're passing on the grace of God. We're passing on something bigger than ourselves. And so He calls us to prepare our minds, rolling up our sleeves, having a mindset that is prepared to participate in the gospel that is equipping and calling us to live out our lives, anticipating. When you roll up your sleeves, church, we're anticipating to get our hands dirty. He calls us to prepare. And not only that, the last thing this morning is this, that He calls us to be at a place of being sober-minded. 
You know, and immediately when our mind goes to sober, we think about, you know, uh, recreational drug use. We think about overuse of alcohol, those type of things. And I do believe to an, to an extent that that is speaking to that. Because if you're inebriated, then your mind is not sober. It is not clear. And so I do believe in a lot of ways it's speaking into that. But mostly what I believe he is speaking into now when keeping with the mental aspect of this. He says being sober-minded, he is calling us to be at a place where we are free mentally and spiritually from the attacks on our self-control. The attacks on our self-discipline to avoid the pitfalls and distraction and destruction that it brings in our lives. What he is calling us to do is to have clear minds. You know, because there are so many times, I don't know about you, but I know for me, that I can be intoxicated by my thoughts. Right? Have you ever been in those points where you've been intoxicated by your thoughts, that you dwell on situations, that you dwell on something somebody said, that you dwell on some in particular way that you've been hurt or disappointed or, 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 or even in, think about it in, the, in a relationship, a husband, a wife. I mean, how many fights have only progressively gotten worse because somebody said something to another and there was a back and forth. You went away, you thought about it, you got more mad about it and you came back even harder, Right. Because we can get intoxicated by our thoughts and in turn not being sober-minded anymore, not being clear-headed anymore. And that's not only exacerbated by anger, but maybe it's fear. Maybe we dwell on fear. Maybe we dwell on our inability to participate. You know, we think about the local church being that hub at which people participate in ministry and gospel ministry. But a lot of us, I think we can get very intoxicated with our own thoughts of our own fears or inadequacy or even our place within that ministry to the point that it... It, it limits us. It robs us of the experience of not only seeing God's grace in our own lives, but seeing it realized in the life of someone else. And so not only that, but in the light of adversity. I mean, you think about moments in your life that, you know, that something else has become our go-to. Something else has been our comfort or our, our relief. The time when we are you know, most likely, you know, think about it in regards to, say, a diet. The time when we are most likely to cheat on our diet is the time when we're the hungriest, right? The time when you're most likely to lean into something else for comfort or stability is in our most distressed. And so in a time like right now, when it is by far up to this point, I believe the hardest time, besides biblical time, the hardest time to be a Christian, this is the time. It would be the most likely for us to give up, to go to something else for comfort, to go to something else for, for purpose and value. And so what Peter's telling us here is, like, man, don't settle for anything less, but have hope in the grace of God to carry you through these things. John Viper said this, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power not just pardon. And so when we set our hopes on the grace of God, it's not only the, 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 the leniency in our sinfulness, but it's the power of God not to sin. And not only the power of God not to sin, but the power of God or to pursue not sinning, but the power of God to step into His graceful work that He has for us. To be actively participating. As our, I'm so thankful as our church has done time and time and time again. And I pray that we continue to do as a church body. And so I want to end with this. The question is for us, you know, what does this hope mean for us? 
when we think about the hope of God's grace, that it would be this, that it's not a question of if, but a confidence in what is. That He is carrying us by His grace. That He has empowered us through His grace. That He has things for us to accomplish as a church body by His grace. And that hope is not an unsure proclamation of what may be. It is confidence in the promises of who He is. It is a realization of His grace and His work for us. And that if I could sum it up all into this, it would be this. That grace grants us hope. That is, things seem difficult. As me as a parent, as I navigate leading my family, as you as a parent navigate leading your family, as a husband, as a wife, as a single mom, as students stepping into schools, navigating leading people to this grace, that the motivating factor would be the grace they've personally experienced and that it would encourage and that it would sustain all the work that God has for us to do. Because church, at its core, the Christian message pivots and is empowered on God's grace. And so that's why this morning when Peter's speaking to us here today, he says, set your hope fully on His grace. Because that is the only thing that will be left when all else is gone, when all else has been destroyed, when all else has turned its back, when all else has fallen short, the grace of God will never change. Because church, we didn't do anything to earn it, so we can't do anything to lose it. He says, rest in it and allow it to motivate us, to drive us and to lead us. So church, let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for all that you've given us, all that you've done for us, with us, and through us. Father, I just pray that today, God, that we would know more than anything else, God, about the grace that you've provided to your people. And Lord, not only just for us to hear, not to just be hearers, but like your word tells us, to be doers of this word to be a people that are ready to live this out in our lives, in our families' lives, in the lives of our local church, in the lives of our community, God, and in seeing how we can serve each other and bring glory to You in Your name. God, I just pray this morning, I pray for Christians here today, God, that just desperately need the reminding about Your grace as they navigate the difficulties and the, the doubts and the fears and the shame and the guilt. God, I pray that they would constantly be reoriented back to you and your grace. And I pray that we would be a church that would constantly do that. And Father God, I pray for those who maybe are still navigating the outside of their faith, just not quite ready, not quite sure. Father God, I pray that you begin to lead them into spaces of asking questions. God of leadership here, asking questions of you. Because we're confident that faith comes by hearing, by hearing of the Word of God. And so that if you would put them in spaces where they feel comfortable to ask questions, God, that they would begin to fully realize the grace that has been experienced and expressed through your Son, Jesus. God, we pray that you would just use us, lead us, guide us in all the spaces you would have us to be and in all the things you would have us to do. Lord, we love you. God, we just ask your blessing over all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.